the ocean is for everyone and we should be able to equally share that ocean without having taxation monetizing too many regulations and so forth that you put on there that keep people of color away from the beaches Welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. This month, I have the pleasure of sitting down for a chat with Rhonda Harper, who has no relation. She is the founder of Black Girl Surf and Inkwell Surf and Skate Club. So Rhonda, welcome to the Good Tidings podcast. Thank you, Larry, for inviting me and having me on the show. It's a pleasure. So I was reading your bio this week, and I want to start out with, how does a black girl from Kansas City, Kansas, fall in love with the ocean and surfing? Honestly, to be the only honest question, only answer I can give is beach blanket bingo, how to stuff a wild bikini, Annette Funicello, Frankie Avalon, like, <laughs> this is no joke. Like, I, people look at me crazy all the time when I say that, but it's absolutely true. When you're a kid from Kansas City, it's hot. And so that's what we watched all summer long, Gidget, all of those movies. And I, got, I had the pleasure of meeting Gidget and some of the guys that are actually the characters in this, too. So it's great. That's wild. And I read you finally, you, you moved to the Bay Area and then eventually got a trip to Hawaii and jumped in the water while they were filming the original Magnum P.I. Yeah, that was awesome. So, yeah, I was staying at the Turtle Bay Hilton at the time, and I think that's great that the loose term is, yeah, you you were sent over there. It was more like I was on punishment and sent to Hawaii. <laughs> but if that's what you call punishment, okay, I'll take it. But, yeah, I was staying at the the Turtle Bay Hilton's Kuilima Estates at the time, and I used to run up to the beach all the time because it was like 30 seconds from my house. It wasn't, you know, that far and uh, I just sit there all day long just watching, you know, watching surfers. And Magnum P.I. just happened to be, the original just happened to be filming there. I mean, the helicopter is there now, but they film there all the time. And I was just sitting there daydreaming and somebody comes up, this guy comes up, kicks my floho, and he asked me if I want to ride tandem. I had heard the word before, but I didn't know exactly what tandem meant. But he explained it, and I felt like that was an easy way to learn how to surf, right? So that was going to be my first foray in the water on a surfboard. Was that Thrill Bay Hilton? Pretty good spot. Yeah, it was an excellent <laughs> spot. <laughs> now, did the ocean draw you to enter into the Coast Guard, and did that experience influence you towards what you're doing now? Definitely. My father was in the Coast Guard, and he, if you had to invent a water baby, I think my dad produced like, 13 of us because he was in the Coast Guard himself and all of his kids are water babies. And he started us off swimming as a life skill, not a recreation. And so, you know, when I got older and I watched my brothers go off to the Navy and I was already surfing, I knew that wherever I was stationed in the Coast Guard, there was going to be water, right? Because it's the Coast Guard. So I knew there was going to be water somewhere. (laughs) So they got, they hooked me and, and uh, yeah. It was the experience of a lifetime. I actually came out and, and joined the Coast Guard Auxiliary. So, you know. That's great. Well, good for you. Well, thank you for your service. Thank you. You have such an interesting, diverse career also. I noticed you went to FITM and the Art Institute. You're also a writer where you had a chance to write for Black Athlete Sports Network. 
Did you always possess both the artistic side and the literal side as growing up? Always. I was always one of those kids. I was what we would consider now a nerd. I was like a bookworm. I had finished our SRAs like the before the first semester. So I was always into reading and being creative. And then you add in the, the majesty of uh, surfing and there you go. That's it. Yeah. Well, I think that's cool. That's a cool example you can set for kids. You can be nerdy. Yeah. And you can still be a surfer. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And then you went on to become the managing editor at Basson and you focused on extreme sports. Did you see a voice that you you were called to be a voice for that genre of sport that was lacking representation? I didn't until I sent the press release in for Nick Gobbledon's plaque and the owner, the CEO, and the editor-in-chief all got together and decided to ask me if I would write because they'd never heard of Black people surfing. And if there was a, if there was outlets for us to report on, then they asked me if I would go out and cover them. So that was my intro into my journalistic career. Yeah. You know, through my path, I really know what the ocean can provide me. Outside of the surfing part, what does it bring the girls you serve, the ocean itself? I think it gives them a sense of, of belonging and healing. There's so many properties that you get from, from actually being in the water, not necessarily surfing. Just if you're with your friends and you're just splashing around, just riding waves, you're already having a good time. Before I even thought about surfing, we were body surfing in Santa Cruz. Before I even walked around the corner and found Steamer's Lane, there was the lighthouse beach and we just go out there for hours so it's hours and hours of fun especially when you're a child and you're growing up because you don't realize the danger it's not until you get older that you realize the danger you're just there for the fun of it and i've watched it happen continent to continent where kids don't even know you're supposed to have a wetsuit on it's freezing cold and they're jumping in in bikinis so i know that there's healing properties especially for my girls who come from mostly the west african continent and then south africa so i've seen south africa which water is freezing cold and we need like a four three maybe a five i've seen them jump in in bikinis i've been there i've watched it so i know it's us as adults (laughs) that get that in their head that it's it's actually cold because the kids don't care yeah it's interesting I, i i go in the ocean almost every day without a wetsuit in pacifica and people will look at you like there might be something wrong with you Mm -hmm. Definitely. For some kids, it's just, I mean, for anybody, it's just a wake up. It's a its a splash in the face. It's a, a recognition to know you're alive. A lot of people won't surf at Manresa. And I will surf at Manresa because one, you have to pay attention at all times. Mother Nature will get you and it's sharky. So Mother Nature will get you. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, the wave reminds me of Hawaii. And I like, when I'm out there, I'm usually trying to get over something. I like people, they do recreational surfing. I don't, I go because that's where I get a peace of mind and I get to reset from all the stuff that I have to deal with in my particular business. And so when I go out there and the waves are just smacking me in the face or smacking me in the back of the head, I feel like I'm alive. Instantaneously, I'm smacked back into reality. Now it's time to focus. Now you're here, you're present in this time, in this moment. Nothing else counts but getting back to the shore, right? So I love Manresa. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you, you get out of the Coast Guard and you have these visions of, of starting these two organizations. And I'm really intrigued with the Black Girl Surf. Where did that thought come from? actually came from being at BASN for so long because I was being sent on all types of assignments and I would go and you would, the, the assignment is to 
to write on black surfers that are participating in these competition sports and you go and there's none. And then how long can you do that before you decide, like, I'm done with this part of it? I mean, the vacations were nice or whatever, because that's what I called them. But it's time to get in front and figure out how to make a pathway so that we can. There's a pathway that, uh, from beginning to end that you can get, you know, people of color and bl- especially black black people, because mm-hmm. let's just be honest. Mexico had the Mexican circuit. They had their competitions. Everybody would come up to to that WSL or the ASP at the time. The Hawaiians were already involved. The Asians were already involved. The only one that was missing from the equation were black surfers in the competition circuit. So when you see that after time, after year, after year, you say, okay, it's time. So I created the Africa Surf International, which is the parent company for Black Girl Surf. Interesting. So not only do you have it here in the Bay Area, but you went right to Africa. So, and did Africa come first or did the Bay Area come first? The Bay Area came first. Actually, Los Angeles was, Los Angeles was the the starting ground. I'm from here. So, you know, Santa Cruz is, is the next location, right? And then the third one would be the Africa, whole West Africa, but most mostly this last year has been Senegal concentrated because of COVID situation. So when I was locked in to Senegal and they shut the country down, I was able to focus more on West Africa. So we're back now to refocus on the United States. <laughs> so interesting. And I know we're sitting here with a professional surfer from Senegal and I'll probably butcher these names up, but I wanted to know, is it almost Jackie Robinson-esque developing the likes of Kadiatu Kamara from Sierra Leone and Kaju Sambe from Senegal. Is it that path that they're leading similar to what Jackie had to go through? Yeah, it's exactly what it was. And seeing the results of the introduction of Hardiata, which is sitting right there, yeah. the movies that come, the webbies that come, the recognition that comes from now someone saying, hey, we're here and we need to be counted. We need to be included. So that introduction, and then you throw in the paddle outs, and then you have you have a whole different change in the way that we see surfing. Yeah, that's great. And is it more important for a young woman to become the first Olympian or to have success on the WSL? And for people listening that don't know what the WSL is, it's the equivalent of the MLB and the NFL and the NBA is for surfing. Which is more important, you think, to happen? If you're representing your country, the Olympic route is the way to go. If you're not representing your country and you're an individual athlete, the WSL is the way to go. What out of the two of them that I am working diligently with now at this point of my career is the ISA portion because that route to the Olympics is development. When you're in the WSL, you're already a professional. You're already ready. You're rock, lock, stock, and barrel ready to to participate. When you're in the ISA, there's so many development programs and things that we're putting together, even the camp which we just put together in South Africa. These are all training camps for these girls to go eventually to, to the Olympics. These aren't, you know, just go out and have fun days. Yes, there's a surf therapy component that we added later. But when we initially put this program together, it was a performance training camp for girls who want to go on to competitive surfing. I know the Olympics have country quotas for all the sports, especially individual sports. Do African countries get automatic bursts or no, you've got to compete and you have to earn some points somewhere along the way? You have to compete just like everyone else and get your points added up. The problem is, is that there's not enough contests in Africa at the moment for you to get enough points to go on to professional 
surfing. So that's why I say go the ISA route because there's only maybe four or five competitions leading up to the Olympics, if you're lucky. Whereas the WSL tour or the old ASP tour, you had to compete, go this country, this country, you might be in this city next year in this. And it's very hard for a West African surfer to be able to afford that travel. So what they did was they made it regional. But if you don't have contests within the region, right, then they you can't earn points. So now we're having to take the girls from West Africa to South Africa to compete because they do have contests. So until West Africa builds up some type of circuit, which is what we're working on with Africa Surf International, the kids have no no way to go. There's no pathway unless somebody creates it. And right, right now there's no pathway. And does the WSL help? I watched the show that a lot of people are familiar with recently, The Ultimate Surfer. So representation there, I could see it's very bacheloresque. It's very made for TV. And I think Hawaiian surfers kind of say that they do represent some sort of culture, but I'd like to get your take on that show. So, so we were asked a couple of years back, we knew it was coming. We were asked to participate in, in that program and we turned it down because we didn't want to represent just based on color. We wanted to base on merit. And so I turned it down. I didn't think it was a good option for Haju at the time. We were just now starting to build build her career up. And for her to be in something like that, it it just seemed disingenuous and like she was reaching and it would take away from her talent, right? To focus on whatever romantic relationship they were going to try to create, which would have been, I don't know, that would have been interesting as well, but... <laughs> 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 but yeah, they asked and, and we, we wholeheartedly turned it down. It was just wrong, it was just the wrong timing. Sure. And, yeah, I can see that. And here in this country and your programs you work here, is it easier to hook people into surfing by starting them with skating? Do you think? Or do you think you can go right do you take kids right to the ocean? See, I'm just so biased because I was a skateboarder first mm -hmm. and then I became a surfer. I'm on both because now I do have I do have Carver behind me. So I recommend the surf skate. See, that's how you get you get away with both of it, right? So I introduced the the surf skate into our program. And like I said, I'm a little bit biased, but I think that if you learn how to skate first, skateboard first, then surfing comes easier. And I know that's a fact because after the the one time that I went surfing in Hawaii with this guy. I'm left all by myself. So I have to go by a board and I have to teach myself how to surf. And if I didn't know how to skateboard, it would have taken me longer than five days to stand up on a board. Yeah, for sure. And do you think a lot of water sports, they almost seem to be country club sports, so to speak, you know, like swimming and diving and water polo and sailing. Do you think surfing still falls into that misnomer that it's for the wealthy? Yes. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because just look at the prices of the surfboard. I mean, the shapers are getting more and more expensive, you know, even when you want to go get a custom one. And everybody's complaining about Costco. But you can, how do you complain about Costco's boards when they're 150 You go to a shaper and they're now like two, dollars $3,000. A kid from the inner city is going to go to Costco and get that 150 instead of trying to save up all his money to get the Porsche of boards. It's just, it's always been an inequity when it comes to equipment and access and surfing. Like I said, I tell people all the time, go get you a windstorm if that's what you want to do. I mean, you, a windstorm in, in, in West Africa is like the Porsche, 
right? Because you can't get boards there. The biggest problem with West African surfers right now is access to equipment. You can't get it. There are, there's one shaper in Senegal and that's it. And if he is going out of business, then you're out. You can't get wax. Somebody just brought us a case of wax. And that's you know? a big deal. And that was a huge deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, but I do like the fact that you brought up, because even for me, on days where I just go in the ocean, I don't do much, or I just body surf, even without fins or anything, you you can at least go to the ocean and get in familiar with the ocean. And, and I think that's great what you do with the young kids, is just expose them to the safety factor of being in the ocean. Exactly. It's like my dad said, it's a life skill, you know, and I, and I can appreciate what he was trying to tell us as children, but when he actually put me in the pool was like he picked me up like this was a little skinny gangly kid of four and just like tossed me like a basketball into the water and just was like tread well I was there I was fighting the water he's like just tread just kick your feet just move yeah. your hands and I mean you just do it but it was a life skill he was teaching me right now you're drowning this is how you're gonna save yourself and even though I was four and I, I wasn't terrified I instantly got it. I got it. It just, you know, when you go to a community pool, they want you to learn a certain stroke or whatever. And by, you know, that time I was just like, you know, doing a little frog thing, but I was, I was able to, to tread water for a long time. So yeah, it was, it's always been a life skill for me, even though I love it recreationally. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting to me, and I don't know if you agree, COVID has helped the surf world, especially locally, because Prior to COVID, I, I go to Lindemar Beach in Pacific every day, and there's four times the surfers now than there were pre-COVID, and a lot more women, and more women of color. So I think COVID, unfortunately, it's a pandemic, has been good for exposure to the sport. Would you it agree? It has. Yeah. I agree. I totally agree, especially with all the work that we've done, because everything that we've, we've been doing, you can go and see on your computer. You don't have to participate with us. We were in lockdown. And we were still going out and doing things that we were able to do on the beaches. And you would see it come back. The images were coming back to the United States. And everybody's like, Rhonda's having fun. Next thing you know, the BBC is over there. You know, the CNN is over there. Every channel you can think of is coming to where we are because in a pandemic, the, especially the way it was in the United States, I can see where you need that ray of sunshine, that ray of hope. And what we were trying to do is make sure that the world just seemed like a much happier place, even though we were suffering too. I'm literally locked out of my home for a year. I can't come home. So I have to make the best of it. So what do I do? I open up a surf school. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you had a a great paddle out in Pacifica early on in the pandemic, and that's when everybody even here in the United States was supposed to be in your home. The beaches were open, thank goodness. And through the social uprising that we keep going through in this country, unfortunately, COVID helped that cause too, I think, because people were home with nothing to do. I can go to the beach and I can support the Black movement. Mm-hmm. And it was great for us. Just think I'm out of my country. If I'm here, you know, I've been part of the NAACP or some social justice movement my entire life, ever since I was five. So it was nothing new for me the incident itself, it's what do you do when you're not home? How do you get your voice across when you're not at home? Because if I would have been here, I would have had boots on the ground. Of course, I would have been marching and, and other things. But I do think the significance of having it worldwide and having people continue to join on even after that, that right there should spark hope in anyone. 
right? Because you see, you're exactly right. You're at home. You can at least go to the beach. You can at least hit that. You can at least make your voice heard or stand in the sand or kneel, right? For those moments that, it, you know, that he was dying. So I think that out of all of the things that, that I've been able to do in my career, the most monumental as far as change would probably be in the paddle house. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, they were quite moving, no doubt. And how important will it be when young black girls in this country and in Africa see these great women get to the forefront? How will that impact them and help with their dreams and, you know, their future of what they want to do and become? Now they can see themselves. You know, my motto is, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And it's always been that way. Now they see it. Now they know they can achieve it. So it's a little bit different. Now I get to change that motto a little bit. Now you see it. You can go out and achieve it. You can be whoever you want. That was the beauty of having parents the way I had. Is this all? Everybody asked me, where does this come from? It comes from my parents telling me that I could be anything that I wanted at any time. And if I changed my mind, that was okay as long as I was happy. It didn't matter your race, your gender, religion, anything. It just is what you want. And I, it took me a minute, but I figured it out. I mean, it, it took me a long minute. I think I was like 34 and I finally figured, okay, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> this yeah. is exactly what I'm going to do. And I, you know, it took me 18 years to get to this point where your voice is actually heard and respected. But it's just been a, a learning experience all all around, mm-hmm. just for people in general. Just how, I mean, I, I grew up in all white neighborhoods and just seeing, thinking, no, there will be no white people at these paddle outs. It would just all be black people and people of color. And then to see the turnout. And then to be able to sit down in the office with the WSL and say, listen, I want to license your contest, you know, in South Africa and be able to give them the check and say, here, here's the check for it. You know, those are all these things that are happening, you know, in the 18 years you figure trying to figure out your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's always ongoing. <laughs> it's I love ongoing. it. No, I, 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 I totally relate. And along the way, do you teach the young women both here in this country and in Africa to be stewards of the ocean also? Does that come along oh, yes. with what you're doing? Oh, yes. And they see me, what they say, lose it at any moment when I go to the <laughs> beach and I see trash everywhere. Like, just leaving. When you don't have access to technology and, and the information that we've put in here in the United States as far as being a great steward of the ocean. A lot of developing countries don't have that access. And so if you know what's wrong and you see what's wrong and you want to say what's wrong, sometimes it's it's not the time, right? I'm over in Senegal and I realize how much plastic is in the ocean, but Senegal is that last part of Africa before you hit the America. So everything washes and you understand. And so you can go, I mean, the beaches are absolutely gorgeous. The water is absolutely crystal blue, but you can see the plastic and you can see the damage caused by single use plastic and just plastics in general in the oceans there. And you really can't say anything because most of them, most of those countries are fishing countries, especially the villages, they're, they're fishing villages. And so how do you tell the person that's using 
a single-use plastic to take his fish out that's going to feed his family, that that's not good if you leave that out in the ocean. You're just going to surf and pick up bags. That's what you're going to do. Like That's yeah. the only thing you can do. Or call Surfrider. You know, I'm part of Surfrider as well. And so, you know, you, you kind of say, listen, I don't want to tell somebody what to do in their country. However, I am linked to this association that can help you navigate how to dispose of or at least turn it into some type of monetary benefit for the country itself right so that'll be my next journey when i go back yeah yeah so that brings me what is next for you and what moves you to continue what is next on the horizon for black girl surf so we just we just returned a few days ago and so now what we're doing is we're planning a girls tour where we're going to go across the country and do pop-up surf camps. Um, we're going to start here in Santa Cruz. Los Angeles is next. San Diego. We're going to do the indoor pool in Texas. We just want people to know. And then I'm going to tour colleges after that. And when I when I say colleges, I mean the HBCUs right. and get them involved. There's you know there's water in DC. You know you can go out there. You know and you can hit each one of these historically black colleges to to continue to spread the word about the ocean is for everyone. I hear people say, "Oh, the ocean doesn't see color." Those are, and I say, "Oh God, please don't give me that line again." But just say that the ocean is for everyone. And we should be able to equally share that ocean without having taxation, monetizing, too many regulations and so forth that you put on there that keep people of color away from the beaches, right? If you take away 120 parking spots from an area known to be a historically black beach, you take away 140 parking spaces, you're basically attacking. <laughs> Obviously. Right? Yeah. You want to keep those people out. So for the people in, in Dockweiler down there in, in Los Angeles, I feel for them. And I, and I do want to work with them on how to to reverse that because it is that that's a form of discrimination. It's a for, just leaving access, you know? So, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's next for us. I like that. Well, I like the, the wouldn't that be something if the, if the HBCUs had a surf league? It would be. Wouldn't that so be that's unbelievable? My thing. That's my thing. I'm claiming it. <laughs> yeah. That would be because it's, it's here in California yeah. amongst the universities. Yeah. So, yeah. And you can join them right up with the NSSA. It's the, the Scholastic. It's that Scholastic. It doesn't say exclude bl- historically black colleges. It says as long as you're in school. Yeah. You can be a team. So that's my next real serious foray into the development of black surfers. Yeah, that's great. And when you look back now and you see yourself in the Coast Guard and where you're at now, do you think you were called to this somehow, where you're at now? Was it a calling yeah, it for a service? Calling. It was a calling. And then even when I left, because I left the so I didn't want to leave the Coast Guard. It, you know, I was injured and so you, you get discharged, but... Right after that, I felt like I wasn't doing enough, right? Because that's the reason why you join the service, because you want to serve. And so I think I just took that energy and put it into Black Girl Surf. And it was funny because I was down. It was during a time that I was down with my injury from the, the Coast Guard that I had time to really concentrate on Black Girl Surf and, and get a vision, a proper mission statement to put out and to follow. And so Coast Guard helped in a couple of ways there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think it's all great. And I I just wanted to thank you, Rhonda, for joining this month's podcast. We're going to put in all the show notes, how people can get engaged and help help your cause. 
And just, again, congratulations on all you're doing and all that you're going to do. Uh, Thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. You have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.